Well, hey, North Point. That's okay. I don't want to see you either. Uh, just kidding. I love you guys. I love this is a privilege. I want to tap in on that uh, little blurb about the men's event that's coming up on the 24th of April called Let's Go Fishing because some of you immediately tuned that out because you heard the word let's. And you're like, wait, there's other people there. Or go. I don't want to put on pants. Or fishing, and you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm super out at this point. I just want to tell you that if you're not into fishing, that's okay, uh, because uh, that event was designed by at least two-thirds of those guys who are not into fishing. Trust me, there will be something there for you. If nothing else, humor me. Go on the website. You can click the QR codes on the cards that are in the back, or you can go in the announcements tab in your app and check that out, uh, and at least read the blurb, all right? So before you reject an idea, and now some of you guys are super into fishing, and you're like, oh my gosh, we're going fishing. I don't want to set that up too high for you. There will be fish, but not what you expect. Fair enough? Oh, did I whet your appetite? Did I intrigue it enough? No. All right, good. We're batting two for two. This is good. Let's see what happens in the next few minutes. We are in a series uh, that we've been calling Jesus Is. Taking a look at the last week, really last week-ish of Jesus' uh, life ministry on earth and kind of what he reveals about himself in those, those days. So far, we've looked at some uh, concepts like Jesus is power over death, Jesus is worthy, Jesus is king, Jesus is serious, and today, uh, I, I want us to look at a, a Jesus is statement or, or element or image that is true, and yet, at least to me, and, and maybe you're not like me, and that's, that's cool, but at least to me, it seems like a really odd piece of imagery. Like, like, if I were inventing a religion out of scratch, I would not use this of the God that I created, if, if I were creating it. But God uses this of, of himself. Jesus uses this image, and I just find it a little odd. That's what I want to dig out this morning. And, and we're not trying to like keep you in waiting. It's this picture right here that Jesus is the Lamb of God. Now, if you grew up in, in church world, um, you know, maybe that doesn't strike you as anything. You're like, oh, yeah, okay, cool. But, but if, if, if you're not really plugged into that world, a, a, lambs are like, not really like the toughest, boldest, most like victorious animals on the planet. I'm not a shepherd. I'm not a farmer. I don't really know much about lambs or sheep. So if you're a shepherder here and you want to correct me later and tell me that lambs are like the most powerful uh, animals known to man, they just take on lions and lions flee, then we have that. I don't know. I don't think so. But in my brain, the way I think of lambs, I just don't think that they are this incredibly tough animal. They don't really make you want to rally to their cause. I know they're cute, and you pet them, and they make you, oh, and then you shave them, and you make clothes or something. I don't know. But they just don't seem like this really incredibly powerful animal. Matter of fact, I read this story the other day in a magazine called Grit, Rural American know-how, which should make you pause and go, why are you reading a magazine called, I don't know, uh, that seems to capture the essence of lambs pretty well. This is the story. So it's, it's about three in the morning, and I, Ginny, turn over to snuggle against Joe, when suddenly I hear it. Oh, no, not again. There's a car horn blaring out on the road in front of our house. Not just a friendly tap, but an annoyed, get out of my way, Blair. Not another in an endless string of escaped sheep stories. I shake Joe and say, hey, the sheep are out on the road again. 
He moans, rolls over, and mutters, just leave them there. I'm tired of chasing them. Maybe they'll go and be someone else's sheep for a while. But he sits up and begins pulling on his pants as I stumble into the bathroom for my clothes. For two weeks, we've been trying to figure out where the sheep are sneaking out, but every time we think we've solved the problem, those wooly Houdinis find another small hole. The fence is scheduled to be repaired, but not until the summer, uh, the end of the summer. We grab our flashlights and jump in the truck. The road is actually a quarter of a mile away, and the sheep could be anywhere along its twisted path. Or they could be in the neighbor's flower garden, stomping all over his prized petunias. It's never easy keeping sheep. Joe drives, and I hang out the window, sweeping my flashlight along the berm. And we spot them, 12 ewes and a bunch of lambs all prancing along, heads held high like runway models in the center of the road. They're headed for a field of 4-H sweet corn about 100 yards away. Joe eases around our woolies, girls gone wild with the truck. You don't want to make this herding maneuver too quickly or the flock will bolt. We're lucky this time. The sheep let him by, and I jump out while he pulls past them to look for a place to turn around. My flashlight beam is surreal in the mist, and the sheep are kind of spooky. I'm careful because I've learned that sheep can have an interesting reaction to light. One evening, some months ago, just after dark, I was driving my Buick up our gravel driveway. As I rounded the first turn, my headlights illuminated a flock of sheep standing about 20 feet in front of me. One of the evangelical ones must have whispered to her buddies, run to the light, because they all turned and headed straight for the car. Bonk, bonk, bonk. One after another, they plunged headfirst into my front grill and then staggered off to the side to let the others have a turn. I honked the horn, but that just seemed to confuse them more. The sheep sped up, and my car rocked as every ewe threw itself at it. Finally, when they were all sprawled on the edges of the driveway, I edged past them and drove to the house, and they staggered to their feet and followed me in. Honey, you won't believe what just happened, I shouted to my husband, who was reclining in his lazy boy watching the evening news. He listened as I told him the story, and he laughed, and he said, sheep are always looking for an excuse to die. <laughs> Thankfully, the sheep we're chasing tonight don't run toward my flashlight beam. They halt uncertainly, and when Joe comes back down the road in the truck, they do an about-face and trot back toward our farm. They're having so much fun out in the cool evening air that they jog right on past the open gate and head up to our neighbor's meadow. He's left his gate open so he can move tractors in and out as he bales the hay. The sheep, who dedicate their lives to the motto, the grass is always greener in the neighbor's field, take advantage of his generous gesture and shoot into the hole. As I said, it's never easy keeping sheep. We'll pick up on this story in a few minutes. We'll finish it so you at least know what happened to Janie and Joe's sheep. But it's a great place to pause and ask the question, why in the world would Jesus be referred to as the Lamb of God? And that's what I want to do in the next few minutes together is take a look at what I think is the clearest place in the Bible that this is described and explained and the, and the picture is painted uh, in, an, in an event that happened during the last week of Jesus's life and, and really one of the last uh, final events that he has with his guys. There's a handful of final events. This is one of those final events. So we're going to be in the book of Mark. Hopefully you have a Bible this morning, Mark chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible, the verses will be on the screen and they're in the app, which is good. Hopefully Hopefully you have a Bible, though. I think you're going to want to uh, at least circle and underline some things, and we check this out. Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 12. It says this. It says, On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So we drop right into the beginning of a story that we don't have a clue what's being talked about. Unless you're Jewish, 
or you've had some Jewish history classes, this kind of makes no sense. And so normally we just skip over. We're like, okay, cool. And then we just move on to the good stuff. But this is the good stuff. So, so we're, we're thrown into this thing called the Festival of Unleavened Bread. So just give me two minutes. We'll do a little primer on Jewish festival history. The, the, the Festival of Unleavened Bread starts on the 14th or 15th of the Jewish month of Nisan on the Jewish calendar, which is actually right about now in our time. It always falls sometimes between March and April, so it's kind of right now. It's a seven-day feast, and the big deal in this feast is that before it starts, you have to get all the leaven out of your house, all the leavening agents. It's like yeast, and that's as far as I can understand on things that make bread rise. But anything that makes bread rise, you're going to get that out of your house, which it's easy to find the big stuff, right? Loaves of bread in the cabinet, but that's not good enough for the festival of unleavened bread. You got to sweep out every little crumb, every little speck. You got to get to the top back of the cabinet where the fishy crackers live and you're sweeping that out. And so for days ahead of time, the typically woman of the house would like move all the furniture outside up on the roof somewhere. And like the, the penultimate spring cleaning happened, right? Couches are lifted and, and stuff is swept out. This is the day before vacuums, obviously. And the whole goal is getting every little piece of leaven out of the house. It would have taken a ton of effort. Why do they do this? This seems like a silly thing if you're setting up for a, a party, but this is why they do it. For Jews, uh, they, they are all about physical actions that have a spiritual connection or a spiritual connotation, especially in terms of reminders. Here, leaven, again, yeast or leavening agents, are symbolic of sin and have been all throughout Jewish history, symbolic of sin. So this festival of unleavened bread is, is all about reminders of removing sin from your life, from your home, from your world, from your proximity to it. And as they would go through that process, you can see how easy it would be to see this, that they were reminded how impossible that was. Like, like, can you imagine trying to get every speck of dust out of your house in a time where there is no easy way to do that minus a broom and some towels, right? So they were reminded how impossible that was on their own. Again, easy to find the big stuff, impossible to get all the Cheerios out of the couch cushions, right? And so they were reminded, Jews, how important it was that they had this sacrificial system. These sacrifices needed to happen, animal uh, sacrifices, Grain sacrifices all to cover their sin, the big stuff that they could see, but also the little things that they just weren't aware of in the ways that they had possibly sinned. And within this festival of unleavened bread that started with the family cleaning out all the leaven out of their house, it was this cornerstone event, kind of the, 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 the moment that it was all leading up to, all the days of the festival was leading to one dinner. And this one dinner is what, what is called Passover, Passover dinner. I don't know. Has anybody ever celebrated Passover dinner, Passover Seder? Usually there's a couple of folks, right? You've done that at some point. Unless you're Jewish, you don't really experience this. But for Jews, this is a huge deal. Even today, Passover is a big deal. Matter of fact, if you go to Meyer right now, you're going to see all this like the, the center aisle section right next to all the, the you know, terrible uh, Easter candy that they're trying to shove down your throat. You'll see this little Jewish section that has like Minashevitz wine and matzah crackers, right? Because, because Passover is a huge 
feel. Passover was the meal, the centerpiece of the entire festival, and it commemorates something. It commemorates the time that the Jews were slaves in Egypt and this miraculous escape from Egypt. If you grew up in church, maybe you remember hearing these stories, or if you ever saw the movie Prince of Egypt or the Ten Commandments back with Charlton Heston. Wasn't that Charlton Heston, Ten Commandments? Somebody? All right, cool. Uh, uh, If you've ever seen that, you remember that there was this time where Jews were slaves in Egypt, and God told the Egyptian pharaoh to, to let people go, and he's like, no. And so God sent these plagues to encourage uh, Pharaoh to let people go, like flies and frogs and water to blood. is like really terrifying stuff. But the final plague, the 10th plague, was this death of the firstborn son. And the only way that you could spare your firstborn son was if you took the blood of a lamb and painted it over the doorframe to your house. If you did that, then the angel of death would pass over the house. Making sense? And if you didn't do that, then the angel of death did not pass over the house. And there was this, this, this horrible, tragic experience where tons of firstborn sons died in that experience because of the hard-heartedness of an Egyptian pharaoh. God brought this. And so this, this passing over, pass over, passed over, you see the connection, right? This meal is a reminder of that. This event caused Pharaoh to let the people go, but they had to pick up, pack up, and leave in such haste. They didn't have time to let their bread rise. When you read this story in Exodus, it says clearly they didn't have time to let the bread rise, and so they had this unleavened bread, blood of a lamb on a door frame. Are you seeing these pictures that kind of happen? So subsequent Passover celebrations were a full meal, and it included unleavened bread, and it included lamb, and there would be multiple drinkings of cups of wine that represented blood, amongst other things, and then there would be like a reading response, and like the youngest kid would ask these uh, scripted questions that the oldest person would respond to, and it was all about rehearsing the story of this miraculous escape from Egypt. They would hide a coin at one point in the dinner, and some kids would go find it, and they'd like shove it in bread. It's like a whole thing, Right? It's not just Easter dinner. It was like this entire event. And so there's three images I want you to have in your head as we talk over the next few minutes. I want you to have this image of of unleavened bread, right? You know, it looks something like this. This broke up. It was gonna be one gigantic huge one. It was gonna be amazing. But this idea of unleavened unleavened bread, this idea of of, uh, wine represents blood, Right? And then this idea of, uh, this is the best I could do for a lamb, so just just go with it, with me, okay? It's either that or a big bloody chunk of meat, and I thought, nobody wants to see that. This idea of a lamb, right? Oh, she's really well behaved. She stood up. That's not staying, is it? All right. If it goes down, I'm looking for you, buddy. I'm going to need some help. These images I want to have in your head, and this is the meal that Jesus is going to eat with his guys like every other Jewish person at the time. We together on this little little party? All right, drop down to verse 13. It says this, so Jesus sent two of his disciples telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house that he enters, the teacher asks, where are my guests, where's my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he'll show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready, make preparations for us there. The disciples left 
went into the city and found things just as Jesus had told them. And so they prepared the Passover. So Jesus asks his guys to go find a place to eat this meal. Again, Jesus is outside of his normal home. He's kind of roamed a lot. And so he's with his guys and he's in Jerusalem and he says, hey, go find a place for us to eat this. And that may sound kind of rough when we read the language here. We're like, Jesus just said, go stalk a guy and figure out where he lives and be like, hey, we're coming at two. Right? It seems kind of rough, but it, but it really isn't when you understand the culture a little. It's a very common, very expected, very normal thing. Uh, if you could, as a Jew, you would want to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. That's like a big deal. Everybody uh, uh, had to or really wanted to bucket list type of thing at least once in their life, if not every year. So Jerusalem would have been flocked with pilgrims looking for a place to have this dinner. And so, uh, you know, it gave opportunity for people who owned homes in the city to either use or give or rent out this upper room space for groups of people to have their Passover dinner. It would have been uncommon to have multiple groups in the same space, actually. Jesus is asking for a private space. As we'll see in a minute, he's got some plans there. But it wouldn't have been. As a matter of fact, this culture is so hospitable that even if uh, they weren't renting out rooms, they would have been glad to have people join them and their family at their Passover meal. Not to mention that, like, when you think about Jewish uh, genealogy and lineage, like, everybody is related somehow. So you had a third cousin who had a friend's girlfriend's third cousin that lived in Jerusalem. And you just hit him up. You'd be like, hey, I'm here. And they'd be like, who are you? You'd be like, well, and that's how we're related. Okay, cool. Come on in. So it's really not this demand or anything like that. It's just this amazing thing where Jesus says, hey, let's find a place to eat it. And the disciples go and they find this place. Ends up in this top floor of the house they call the upper room, which would have been a really normal thing for houses back then. They would have an upper space. Sometimes open air would have been the roof, sometimes a closed-in space that would have been kept for uh, lots of different options. Like you could have had meetings up there. You could have had groups hosting up there. You could have invited people to stay up there. Um, you could uh, spend well, all kinds of stuff. Matter of fact, I think of it like Michigan basements. Because like when we moved here from California, I don't, I don't know if you know this or not, California doesn't have basements because we don't need them, right? So we have earthquakes and it doesn't matter, right? But, but when you move here to Michigan, we're like, man, every house has a basement. Not every house, I get it. But like every house has a basement, it's so cool. What do you do with it? Then you find out they're furnished. It's a whole house under the house. It's wild. So this is just flipped out the other way, right? It's a whole house above the house. And it's, it's kind of interesting if you were to do a word study in the Bible on the concept of upper rooms, Upper rooms are used a ton for significant spiritual things. Matter of fact, in the book of Daniel, if you remember back, Daniel actually prays in an upper room when the king says, hey, you have to worship me whenever we ring the bell and whatnot. So Daniel prays before he gets thrown into the lion's den. That's where he's seen praying is in an upper room. Elijah raises a widow's son from the dead in an upper room. Peter raises Tabitha from the dead in an upper room. The disciples wait for Jesus' return. After he dies and he rises again and he leaves the planet, they wait for him in an upper room. And in Acts 1, Pentecost is born out of this upper room. So this upper room seems to have this really interesting, consistent spiritual significance. So all that to say, the guys do it. They go and they find a place and that drops us down to verse 17. It says, when evening came, Jesus arrived with the 12 while they were reclining at the table eating, he said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me 
I want to pause because this is Mark's account of the story, and there's actually lots of stuff that happens in this beginning portion of the meal before they get to some of the symbolic elements. Lots of stuff actually happens. The Gospel of John tells us that Jesus actually starts by washing his disciples' feet, and Peter freaks out. He's like, ah, you're not, I'm not going to let you wash my feet. That's nuts below you. And Jesus is like, hey, you need this so that you can be right. And he's like, oh, wash all of me. And he's like, Jesus, Jesus is like, Peter, come on, man, I don't wash all of you. We're just talking about, and so Peter's just having this, this conversation about washing, and Gospel of Luke tells us that an argument breaks out between a couple of the disciples about who's the greatest, which has got to be amazing, because Jesus is like humbly washing some guy's feet, and the other ones on the other side are like, I'm more important. I, you're not. You're an idiot. I'm more important. So they're having this argument going down. Luke and Matthew tell us that at some point, Peter just screams out, I'll die for you, Jesus, and I think Jesus I don't know if this is biblical, this next part, so don't quote me on this, but in my mind, Jesus might have had enough of Peter for the moment. I know Jesus never has enough of people. I know that, I hear you, I get it theologically, but in my head, because Jesus is like, die for me, before the night's over, like, you're gonna pretend like you don't even know me, right? So he had this like thing with Peter, and Peter's confused, and the Gospel of John adds that Peter's still confused, typically confused Peter, about where Jesus keeps talking about going over the last few days. Jesus has been saying, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna leave, I'm gonna go. And Peter's like, where are you? Like, we can follow you. It's not that difficult. We'll just see where you walk and go the same direction. Peter's confused, and he leans over into John, probably because John is sitting next to Jesus, Peter leans across the table and goes, hey, man, you ask him where he's going. I got really beat up over the whole I'll die for you statement. And so, so John leans in, and then, and then we had, does this sound like a typical family dinner at your house? You have everybody around the table, and you, you, know, you got the cousins over there fighting over who can lift more, and Uncle Pete picking a fight with anyone who will listen, and the crazy political extremist trying to convince you why you're wrong, and the gun nut talking about, just come take them from my cold, dead hands. I'm a gun nut. I can say it. It's my people. Okay. Add in some complaining about why they had to park on the street, not in the driveway, blah, blah, blah. And then everybody starts gossiping about this bomb that Jesus just dropped about a traitor in their midst. And they all start asking, well, who is it? Who is it? Who is it? I don't, is it me? I don't think it's me. Would it be me? Jesus might know. I don't know. I don't, who is it? And so Peter leans over and, and, and tells John, to, and John asks, and then we get down into verse 19. It says that they were saddened, and one by one they said to him, surely you don't mean me. It is one of the 12, he replies. The one who dips bread into the bowl with me, the son of man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him if he hadn't been born. The other gospels tell us, both John and Matthew make it clear that this traitor is this one of the 12 named Judas, and there's a whole story that goes behind that, but Judas probably at this point slips out, I think it's John tells us, uh, probably the other guys were thinking that he's got the money and so he's probably going to buy something or who knows why he slips out, but, but Judas slips out. And I don't know at that moment that any of them were completely clear that it was Judas, but it's interesting because the gospels later want us to know who it is. And this is all happening in the midst of this incredibly spiritually significant meal, which takes us down to verse 22. It says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, take it, this is my body. And then he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. 
this becomes a pinnacle moment for all this stuff right here, which would have been incredibly common sitting on that Passover table. Jesus takes these really common, known, symbolic Jewish Passover elements and he, he tweaks them. You remember the three elements, right? We got unleavened bread and, and, and wine and, and a lamb. And Jesus takes those and turns them into something else. He grabs them and he, he adds another layer of meaning, a new layer of meaning for believers in Jesus. Something incredibly powerful is happening in this moment. And in my mind's eye, all the disciples fighting and arguing and washing and, and wondering who the traitor is and, and yelling out, and I think it like, it stops. And this moment happens. But I think they felt the significance of what was going on. See, see, Jesus took this unleavened bread, and it says that he broke it, and he began to pass it out, and he said, this is now my body. He took this element that for uh, centuries had really been symbolic of sin and the need to get rid of sin and, and the escape from slavery, and he said, it's going to be different now. It's going to be, instead of it reminding you of sin, it'll remind you of me who took on sin, became sin, one last time. So that, so that your relationship, you 11 sitting in this room and everybody that comes after you, can be made right. Jesus tweaks it one last time. And then Jesus takes the, the wine and he pours it into a cup and he, and he passes it around and everybody takes a drink from it. And he says, this element that used to remind you of the blood that went on the doorpost that caused the angel of death to pass over, which was the, the last event before you were able to get out of slavery, he said, it's no longer that. It's all about me and my blood that in just a few hours is going to be spilled out. It's going to be shed. It's going to be poured out. It's going to be painted one last time as a sacrifice to make relationship between you and God right again. This lamb that they would have spent time eating and looking at, a very common element in Jewish culture and life and religion. And Jesus looks at this lamb, and, and, and I think the picture is that he becomes that lamb. See the, see, the blood that goes on the doorpost, it came from a lamb. The lamb had to die in order to make that happen. Throughout history for the Jews, the only way to make right-ish, the relationship between them and God was this continual sacrifice of, of lambs, of animals over and over and over and over and over and over, you see where I'm going, and over again. Thousands and thousands and thousands of lambs sacrificed that consistently reminded the Jews of what it took to make relationship with God right-ish. Uh, uh, but there was always a piece missing because it had to be done over and over again because people kept sinning over and over again because this little cute fuzzy thing in its innocence died for that sin or at least in, in, in the economy of the Jewish system to, to point us to something else that would come in the future. A one-time, last event, once for all, not to make relationship with God and man right-ish, but to make relationship with God and man right. No-ish. And so this moment as they're eating this and Jesus is taking bread and taking wine and they're looking at this lamb and Jesus is saying that this is me. 
I'm no longer a missing piece. In an instant, in one dinner party, Jesus took that symbol on himself and became the last lamb sacrifice needed. The innocent God-man choosing to provide himself as the once-for-all sacrifice for his people. This unleavened bread becomes his, his body. It's not gonna become his body in the next few minutes. We're gonna celebrate this together. It doesn't turn magically somehow into flesh. It's a symbol, right? And this wine, it now represents his blood. He calls it a new covenant. The old covenant had to happen over and over again, but this new covenant, it's one time. Jesus dies one time to make our relationship with God, right, for believers in Jesus. This picture of Jesus as the Lamb of God it's, it's phenomenal. And, and this imagery is so powerful that I, I, I not, I, the reason I think that, that the voices stopped at the dinner table and the guys picked their head up and paid more attention is because this picture of Jesus as Lamb of God then because imagery that the Gospel of John, the John the Bible writer, he uses it to open his gospel. He calls Jesus the Lamb of God and he uses it in the book of Revelation as he sort of closes the written words that we have in the Bible calling Jesus the Lamb of God. It was such a powerful picture. I wanna pick back up the story about Joe and Ginny's runaway sheep. I don't wanna leave you hanging on that. This is how they finish it. She says, I climb back into the truck, and Joe and I have uh, the kind of heated discussion a farmer and his wife have at 3 a.m. in the morning when they're riding around in a pickup truck chasing sheep instead of lying in bed counting them. So I'm all for continuing the chase, but he wants to shut the gate and pen the sheep in the hayfield until morning. Ultimately, he wins, and we drive back to the house and crawl back into bed until, uh, where we sleep until 6 a.m. That's when our neighbor calls to let us know that our sheep are in his field. We roll out of bed again, even less cheerful than we were the night before. This time, however, we deploy our secret weapon. We have two teenage sons who lift weights and run to stay in shape for basketball and baseball. This morning, we're going to help them become even better athletes. I throw the covers off one, Joe tickles the feet of the other, and we enthusiastically describe the benefits of the early morning sheep workout they are about to enjoy. We send them out the door as we crawl back into bed. We both agree it's never easy keeping sheep, but it's definitely easier if you have teenage boys. It's a funny lamb story, right? But see, Jesus, he's not called the lamb of God because he wanders away from us or because he headbutts us when we shine light on him or that he constantly sneaks out of the gate or he has to be hunted down by teenage boys. Jesus is the lamb of God because he was the final sacrifice in a long line of sacrifices the once-for-all sacrifice to once-for-all repair the relationship between people and God. Willingly, he goes to the cross on Friday. He raises from the dead on Sunday, all because he loves you and me so much that he deeply desires to have a relationship with us. Which begs the question, and the one that I'll leave you with, do you know him that way? Where are you in Jesus See, it's, it's our great hope as a church, it's my great hope as a, a pastor, but it just as a guy who loves Jesus, that you're not just a church person. You know what I mean? You don't just come to church on Sundays, it's what you do, it's part of the, just, it's, not, it's our hope that that is not it for you, but that you have an authentic, life-changing relationship with the Lamb of God. Nobody can know that except for you. Like, you know what's in your heart. You know and God knows. I don't know. Your spouse doesn't know. The people at the end of the pew don't know. We don't know what's in your heart. But it's our great hope. There's so much more than just being a church person.
We're gonna um, actually engage in this meal right now. This only makes sense for us to do this. We call it communion. That's the word that's been coined over the years. But we're gonna do it right now. Um, the band is gonna come out in a second. We're, they're gonna play two songs. There is plenty of time. You're in no hurry. You're in no rush. It's like 10 minutes. It's tons of time. And we want you to just lean into this time. Like, we're a little early. You're not getting your kids. There's no reason to book out. Like, we want you to spend just some time doing business with the Lamb of God. If you've not already grabbed the communion packets from the back when the band starts playing, feel free to pop up and do that. We want you to ask the question. I'm asking you to ask the question. Do you know him? When you think of this picture of the Lamb of God, is he your lamb? Or is it just some intellectual ascent of, oh, that's, I get that, okay. Or is he yours? Like, Do you have that life-changing relationship? With God, And when you're ready, you feel free to eat and drink out of that cup. If you came with a family or a group of people and you want to lean into each other and, and spend a couple minutes praying or, or talking, you feel free to do that. And then when you're ready, feel free to eat. If, if you came with people and you don't want to talk to them uh, or you haven't come with anybody and you're like, I don't, I don't, really, that's okay too. Like we want you to ask that question, do a little business with God. And when you feel ready, you, you just pop that top and eat and and drink, and then, and then when you're done with that and you feel like it, you feel free to engage with the band. If that's singing, you feel free to sing. If that's just sitting and thinking and praying and asking, questions are really good. And I just encourage you to do that. Amen.